Thank you. This morning we'll be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon. We're, <clears throat> we're in the middle of this meta-narrative series, meta-narrative, the big story of the Bible, understanding things from God's perspective, knowing that the Bible tells us where things went wrong in the world was when man and woman decided to interpret the world on their own, apart from God, which the Bible calls eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so if that led to all the problems, then certainly part of the solution is getting back to listening to God. Who God is, who we are, what our problem is, what is the solution, and what will ultimately bring us the happiness and satisfaction our hearts are longing for. I think we just sang about that. Yes, we did. As we get to this part of the story in the Bible, we remember King Solomon, son of David, asked God for wisdom, and God granted him more wisdom than any other man had ever had. And a lot of that wisdom is recorded in the book of Proverbs. Wonderful reading. Really a book you should be in almost daily, if you're looking for wisdom for living life, then Proverbs is your book. It's not the only place that wisdom uh, is recorded in the Bible, but certainly a lot of it is compiled there all in one book. And yet, Solomon also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you've ever read through the book of Ecclesiastes, it can be an eye-opening experience. Even disillusioning, uh, disheartening, confusing. Uh, there seems to be a lot of cynicism and skepticism and what's the point in life, really? And most versions use a translation of a Hebrew word which comes out as vanity. And so it'll say vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But we could also say emptiness, emptiness, all is emptiness. Pointlessness, pointlessness. All is pointless. And I know your life has gotten there sometimes. Where you just have those mornings where you're like, what is the point in all this? And I'm glad that God inspired Solomon to write this book. It lets me know God knows what's going on in my heart and what my struggles are and that I'm not the first person who has struggled in this way. And if Solomon, the wisest man who ever walked the planet apart from Jesus Christ, had this problem, then I guess I'm in good company, though it's company I really don't want to be in. I don't like it when life feels meaningless and pointless and, and depressing and um, problems that seem unsolvable. So I I want to first read from Proverbs, and then I want to read from Ecclesiastes. And the title of the sermon is, When Wisdom and Happiness Seem, Seem to Be at Odds. We've been talking about this wisdom from God that's supposed to bring happiness, and we're going to hear Solomon indeed tell us that God's wisdom leads to happiness. But then we'll hear him out the other side of his mouth say, wisdom can lead to great misery. So which is it, Solomon? Let, let's hear his words. Proverbs 8. 
after seven chapters of talking about wisdom, Solomon personifies wisdom as a woman calling out from the gates of the city. And remember, he's writing Proverbs initially to his sons. What a, what a great dad writing a book of wisdom for his sons, knowing that one of them would be king someday, but in general, just wisdom for living life. And by extension, this wisdom is for all of us. And he says, Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? Remember, wisdom is the um, ability to apply understanding for successful living. So wisdom lifts her voice and understanding. Understanding is the, the know-how. Wisdom's the ability to take the understanding and apply it to life. So wisdom lifts up her voice. He goes on to say in verse 22 even that the Lord possessed me, me being wisdom, at the beginning of his way before his works of old. So wisdom is saying, hey, when God created the heavens and the earth, I was there with him. And I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. It's talking about God taking great delight in wisdom, great delight in using his infinite intelligence to create this amazing universe, and ultimately the pinnacle of his creation, mankind. A living being designed to know God, have relationship with Him, marvel in His glory, which the Bible would define as happiness. That's ultimate happiness, is just soaking in God's presence and marveling at His beauty and His wonder and His majesty, being in awe of God and enjoying Him forever. And he says, Now therefore, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways. And we've talked for a few weeks about how the Hebrew word translated blessed is actually the word happy. Blessed is happy. We don't have to feel like there's some contradiction between blessed by God and being happy. Real happiness is rooted and grounded in knowing God and obeying Him. Holiness and happiness go hand in hand. It's not like I have to choose one or the other. Do I go out into the world and live the happy life, or do I come to church and live the holy life? Well, I know which one I should choose. No, the happy life outside of God is not the happy life at all. It's a vapor. It's here today, gone tomorrow. It's vanity, vanity. All is vanity. So here's true wisdom from God. You can take Proverbs 8 to the bank. Wisdom from God will lead to your ultimate happiness. And then we get to the book of Ecclesiastes, which Solomon wrote much later in his life. And he writes this, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. That's a huge task, right? It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. Wow. 
Soak in those words. It is a grievous task. The task of setting your mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning everything that's done here on earth. He said everything done under heaven. So, he's using that great intelligence and great wisdom God gave him to look at what goes on on earth and try to make sense of it all for the purpose of making things better, for solving all the problems here on earth, really for maybe trying to recreate utopia. And for a while, Solomon had a good, a good run. Read about his kingdom, so prosperous in, in peace like Israel had never seen, and really like any nation had ever seen. And we could draw parallels with our own country. Man, we've had a good run. And I want it to keep going. But it seems problems are creeping up faster than they can be solved. One scandal hits, and before they've even covered it, three more hit. Everything seems to be falling apart at the seams, and nobody knows the way back. This mirrors Solomon's life, so promising at the beginning and off to such a great start, but near the end of his life, he says, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Right? You can never catch up to wind. You can't grab it. You can't hold it. it it's wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. Boy, does that resonate with me. Some, some problems are so crooked you can't straighten them out. It's like trying to solve a Rubik's Cube. I could always get one side done. And then I work on another side and get it, and the first side's gone again. Vanity, vanity. It's all van- I know it can be solved, though. And what is lacking cannot be counted. What is lacking cannot be counted. It's just some things you can't reconcile. No matter how much effort and thought you put into it. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. What? How can you say that? You just said the opposite in Proverbs 8. By the way, the way that I'm built, when you see something like this in the Bible where there's an apparent contradiction, I'm hooked. I'm in. I want to know why God would put that in His Word. I hope you're hooked right now. I hope you're tracking. Yeah, that's my life too. Sometimes wisdom sounds great. Other times, my wife and I will joke, can't we go back to ignorance? <laughs> like knowing too much sometimes is no fun. Because with wisdom comes responsibility. And we know you can't go back. And really, when we set our hearts in the right place, we say, you don't want to go back. Life wasn't as good back there as we'd like to believe. Why do you think we went out searching for wisdom? Because we weren't happy and satisfied with where we were at. Just as we get older, our responsibilities grow. Being a pastor of, of, of a fairly large church and a homeschooling mother of four, you know, can't we go back to when it was just the two of us and life was simple? You went to work, you came home, 
Our big night was clipping coupons so we could go to Ralph's for double coupons on Tuesdays and, and uh, pull out the LA Times, find out what's going on over the weekend, go to some fair or some movie. Or, but we got bored of that life. It was empty, meaningless. And so we wanted more. And I went back to school to be a teacher. More wisdom, more education. And then back to school again to get a Master's of Divinity. More education, more wisdom. And I'm sure I'll go back to school again one of these days. And we keep pushing forward because we believe there's got to be more. There's got to be better answers. Life's got to get better than this. If I just had more wisdom, or more resources, or more time, or more strength, at this point in life, more sleep sounds, sounds great. Amen. Thank you. No sleeping during the sermon, though. Let's remind ourselves of, of, of the definition of wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge effectively for successful daily living. And the Bible tells us that wisdom leads to successful living, which leads to happiness and blessedness. It's very clear. But successful living only leads to happiness if we view success and happiness according to God's definitions. That's kind of the key to the sermon today. When we try to define successful living on our own, and if we try to define happiness on our own, all kinds of monkey business can happen. In some sense, every human in the world, if they were asked these questions, what are successful living and what is happiness, would come up with answers that at least partially overlapped. We can probably agree there's universal answers to these questions. And yet, if we look at the list more closely, you would see all kinds of divergent answers. And so, left to his own devices, man will do whatever he thinks is right in his own eyes. And we have seen from the Bible that that leads to disaster, misery, unhappiness. Eventually, man becomes convinced that the key to my happiness lies in taking happiness away from somebody else. And then we have fights and wars and rumors of wars. So what's going on with Solomon then? How could he say in Proverbs one thing and seemingly contradict himself in Ecclesiastes? I believe what happened to Solomon was he became a double-minded man. That James talks about. The double-minded man. Some commentators explain Ecclesiastes in this way. They say, Solomon purposely wrote Ecclesiastes from the perspective of an unbeliever. But when you read through Ecclesiastes, one paragraph it sounds great and is true. No unbeliever would write that. And then the very next paragraph does sound like something an unbeliever would write. So other commentators say, well, Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes when he was in kind of a dark period in his life. We know that he's going to turn from the Lord and turn to idolatry. 
hundreds of wives and concubines and building temples to idols all over Israel. I see a third solution. I think he wrote Ecclesiastes after he came to his senses and repented and wrote it as a record of what his life was like when he had taken his eye off of God. And I believe it's a record for us to show us what our own thinking looks like when one day we're trusting God and obeying God and the next day we're trusting ourselves and obeying ourselves. I think that's why the book resonates with all of us so much. You read it and you're intrigued and, and you're like, yes! And then, and then one paragraph later you're like, yeah, huh, what's up with that? And it, it leaves you filled with angst and skepticism, yet at the same time a little bit of hope that somebody knows what's going on with me. I'm not alone in this. And yet, if the book never supplied a final answer, that would be a horrible place for God to leave us, but it does. And if you haven't read Ecclesiastes, I am going to give you the final answer, so spoiler alert. If you want to leave five minutes early. James 1.5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. God wants us to ask him for wisdom. This is a prayer request he's ready to answer at all times. And he'll give generously without reproach. Without reproach, meaning he won't say to you, What? You want wisdom again? What are you, some kind of idiot? He's not like that. God isn't... He's for us, not against us. If we go to Him in humility, which it takes humility to ask for wisdom, right? If wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge for successful daily living, then by going to God and saying, I don't have enough wisdom, you are in essence saying, I don't got what it takes. I don't, I don't know everything. I don't have all the answers, God. I'm making a mess of things down here. I need your wisdom. God likes it when we come to Him in prayer in humility like that. It was Adam and Eve, our first parents, that, that opposite mindset is what got them in trouble. I don't need God's wisdom. In fact, I think there's a better wisdom apart from God. And God said, chasing after that wisdom on your own terms would bring death, and they thought it would bring more life. Boy, that's the epitome of foolishness. The author of life, the all-wise, all-knowing God, our Creator, telling us, this is the way it is. Here's the wisdom. Here's what will bring you life and happiness. And for us to say, I don't think so. I think there's a better wisdom and a better life apart from God. And so the double-minded man, then, is one who asks for wisdom, but then doubts. James says, He must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable 
in all his ways. When I get somebody into counseling and they're saying life isn't going well and things are kind of a mess and I'm here for counseling, I'm waiting to see from their body language and their words whether they really believe that God has the answers to their problems and that they don't have the answer. Because then they're teachable. It makes all the difference. But if they say, well, I'm here because I know God has all the answers. Well, you don't really believe that. You still think you have the answers. Perhaps you're just coming in so you can say, I did my counseling, I talked to the pastor, now back to my program. Or they come in wanting the pastor to co-sign on their program. This faith that James talks about is the humility of believing and trusting that God is who he says he is, and he is the source of all wisdom. But this double-minded man flip-flops between, I know God says this is what I'm supposed to do, but I really think I should do this. I know God says this will bring me happiness, but my flesh tells me this will bring me happiness. I know God says he wants me to forgive my neighbor, my spouse, my child, my boss, but I don't want to forgive. It's too early. They need to pay. They need to suffer a little. And on and on it goes, and that's the double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We started worship this morning with Hebrews 11, and let me read that Again, without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe, number one, that he exists. And what's wrapped up in that sentiment, he exists, is he really is the God who has revealed himself in the Bible. The God that always was, the God that knows everything, the God that created everything out of nothing, the God who sent His Son to die for us because He loves us, the God who has our best interest in mind, the God who's preparing a place for us in heaven, the God who's adopted us through faith in Christ into His family, that God. And that He rewards those who seek Him. That Fearing the Lord and putting your trust in Him and obeying His commands really will bring a reward. Not the reward you want. Even better. And it's so audacious just to say it. If I was saying it on my own, it would be audacious. But God is saying it. He has a better reward for you than you can possibly imagine. Right? Paul says in Ephesians in his prayer, Bigger than you could even dare to think or ask. I can only ask for things that, that I know about and have experienced. God has things waiting for us that we can't even comprehend. But if, if life on earth can be as good as it is now, imagine what heaven's going to be like. I, I, I can't. So Ecclesiastes, then, I believe, is this record of a double-minded man. I believe it's Solomon at the end of his life looking back at his double-mindedness and writing down almost a journal. 
This was what my life was like when I took my eye off of God. A mixture of wisdom and foolishness. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 2.10, All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. And work is a good thing. And, and the reward we get from our work is a good thing. God's ordained that for us. He wants us to work. Work is good. There's rewards that come from work. Both tangible, like money and benefits, but sometimes the work itself is its own reward. The satisfaction of a job well done. Hearing well done, good and faithful servant at the end of the night. This is, these are good things. We're not preaching to keep your heart away from pleasure. We're preaching that you root and ground your ultimate pleasure in God, and then, according to His commandments and His boundaries, enjoy what He's provided on this earth. Knowing that they're temporary things, they're meant to point to eternal things, better things, permanent things. Don't make the temporal things permanent in your heart, Don't make the secondary things primary in your heart. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind and there was no profit under the sun. Wait, you just said there was a great reward and now you're saying there's no profit. There's our double-minded man. All in the same paragraph. told you I'm reading this book on happiness by Randy Alcorn, the same author who wrote Heaven. Beautiful book. Well done. In fact, one of our small groups are going to do happiness as their next Bible study. I believe it's Jake and Stephanie Smith's uh, study in their home. I'm excited for them. I'm thinking of going to their house Tuesday night just, just to soak up some more of this book and hear other people's thoughts on it. There's a great quote in the book from Tom Brady, and I think maybe he's playing in some important game today, I'm not sure. Um, but this quote is from Tom Brady, the MVP quarterback of the New England Patriots, after his third Super Bowl victory, so I think that was probably 10, 11 years ago. He was being interviewed by Steve Croft from 60 Minutes. Tom said this, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I mean, they want a ring. You got three of them. Man, this is what it is. This is the whole enchilada. This is the big prize. Stop your whining. He says, I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think... God, it's got to be more than this. I love that statement. I don't appreciate that he took the name of God in vain, but I appreciate the irony that he's this close to the answer. It came out of his mouth. God, there's got to be something more than this. Maybe it's God. No. Because Steve Croft said, what's the answer? And Tom said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. So maybe it was that fourth ring that he has. Or maybe it'll be the fifth. 
one for his thumb. Pastor Andy was showing me his thumb from the back of the church this morning during first service. Because then he could say, I have more rings than anyone else, and then maybe that will bring the satisfaction he's looking for. We know it won't. We can root for him anyways, but I would rather root that he would come to the end of himself and seek God. Notice, when he said God, he was this close to the answer. But when he said, I wish I knew, I wish I knew, he got far away. Ecclesiastes 2.12, Solomon says, So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done, right? He says there's nothing new under the sun. The next king is going to live pretty much the same life as the previous king. Everybody has to get up. Everybody has to eat. Everybody has to drink. Everybody has to go to work. Just to stay alive so you can get up tomorrow and do it all over again. And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. That is biblical truth. You can take that to the bank. That is the sanctified part of Solomon speaking. Yes, wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Now here comes skeptical Solomon talking like an atheist, and yet I know that one fate befalls them both. They're both going to die, so what's the point? You can die a wise man and die a fool, and you can't take anything with you. Later in Ecclesiastes, he talks about how the next guy is just going to eat up everything that you built. Well, I've seen this a hundred times. Very diligent, wise people building up this great inheritance, and then their children spending it like that. Gone. First Corinthians two six, Paul says, "Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. You know, those who are, who are ready to accept wisdom from God." A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. Right? This worldly wisdom that the world says it possesses. And in our day and age, maybe we could use the academic elite as the picture of the people who claim to have all the wisdom. They get paid the big bucks at university. People's Second and th- take out second and third mortgages on their house just to sit at the feet of these giants of wisdom and intellectualism to hear them say, there's no ultimate truth. There's no tomorrow. There's no absolute morality. Why bother having children? And they're not. First world countries not having children because all there is is today and there's no tomorrow and there's no afterlife and there's no God so eat, drink and be merry for being 
as wise as they are, it sure is interesting that in 50 years it'll be the second and third world peoples that take over everything the first world peoples built. Except they won't know how to run or fix anything. I don't want to leave a depressing future for my children, but I won't be here to see it. Right? That's the attitude, though, that leads to despair and leads to apathy and What's the point? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But Paul says, and I saw that wisdom, I'm sorry, Paul says, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. There's this hidden wisdom that the Old Testament saints didn't fully know, but they had faith that God is and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Abraham left his home, not knowing what the promised land would look like, and honestly, never fully obtaining the promised land. But knowing that the promised land here on earth was just a picture of an even better promised land in eternity. And yet this side of the cross... We have the New Testament. We have the mystery revealed to us. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. How do you know that, Paul? Because if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Wisdom showed up in the flesh. Happiness showed up in the flesh. Satisfaction showed up in the flesh. And they said, no, that can't be it. Kill him. He didn't come and consult with us, the, the wise people. So he can't be the source of all wisdom. And they killed him. They killed the source of the very thing that they were looking for. Blessedness, happiness, eternal life. If there is no God or eternal reward, then indeed all is vanity. If there is no God or eternal rewards, then yes, all is vanity. If all there is is here in the now, I don't care how good your life gets, at some point you wake up and realize it's only going to get worse from here. I never want to have to say today is the happiest day of my life ever. I would rather say, what a, what a happy day. Tomorrow may be happier. And in Christ, I know ultimately tomorrow will always be infinitely happier than even my best day here. Whatever it is that you're placing your faith in for your happiness, is it your physical beauty? Today's as good as it gets. It's all downhill. Is it your money, your bank account? It, it all goes away. We're $19 trillion in debt in this country. Do you really think your bank account means anything? I don't mean to depress you. I'm giving you the keys to ultimate happiness. I don't mean go out and just blow all your money. That would be foolish. But don't put your trust in your 401k. It 
Solomon said, Then I said to myself, As is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? Like, what was the point in all this wisdom? I'm just going to die just like the fool. So I said to myself, This too is vanity, for there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. Right? He's saying, if you're looking for some kind of eternal life by leaving behind some kind of legacy... That's not eternal life that people write about you in textbooks. And textbooks change. We used to celebrate Washington's birthday and Lincoln's birthday. Now it's President's Day, as if all the presidents are worthy of some kind of special birthday celebration. Not There's probably been more fools in the White House than, than, than wise men. I heard some amens. For there's no lasting remembrance of the wise man. We don't even talk about our founding fathers at school anymore. Constitution? What constitution? Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. Very cynical indeed. If all there is is today, and there's no tomorrow, and no hope of eternal rewards. If if I'm not going to be judged for my actions today in the future, then what's the point? Why run the race if there's no prize, Paul says. There is a prize, though. It's better than any prize we've gotten here because it's an imperishable wreath, he says, an imperishable crown. 1 Corinthians 2.9, But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man... All that God has prepared for those who love Him. Listen to that. Things which have not entered the heart of man. I talked about that. There's eternal rewards that have not even entered our heart. Things we can't comprehend. I think some people think heaven is just like earth, just a little bit better. No. It's infinitely better. And some things on earth, yes, are a foretaste of things to come, but there are things to come that we have no analogy here on earth. I'm excited. It's like, now we're going to get to heaven and say, now that I've never seen before. That I've never experienced before. And it never ends. All that God has prepared for those who love Him, for those who trust Him, for those who honor Him, for those who place their faith in Him. If there's no eternity, then secondary things become primary things. If there's no eternity, then the things God has given us here to enjoy, which are secondary things, and they're intended to point us to God and to say thank you to God, and boy, if you could come up with this, God, I can only imagine what you have waiting for me in heaven. Those things... Our jobs, our marriages, our, our children, food. I'm so happy that food's amazing. Different tastes, different textures. We could have been made without taste buds. Everything could be black and white and not colorful. There could be no music or just one note, like when I sing. <laughs> but God's gone out of His way to make this beautiful, diverse planet that we enjoy. Procreation doesn't have to feel so good. 
God is wonderful. He's given us great gifts, but when those gifts become primary, that's the problem. Solomon again says, as his skeptical, atheistic self, when he takes his eyes off God, so I commended pleasure, for there's nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. If there's nothing better to, to look forward to, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Right? If there's no God and no tomorrow, then the man on his deathbed's going to say, why did I delay gratification? I should have enjoyed things when I still could. And you know, Solomon got to a place in his life where he didn't deny himself any pleasures. Hey, if a wife's a good thing, how about 900? <laughs> More is better if there's no tomorrow. If there's no future. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, and there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives, and afterwards they go to the dead. You get to a place where Solomon saying insanity fills your heart. You can't even enjoy the secondary pleasures in life anymore. I'm depressed. I'm, 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 I'm lost. I'm confused. I'm in turmoil. Nothing tastes good anymore. The things that used to bring me pleasure don't anymore. C.S. Lewis says that replacing primary things with secondary things forfeits both. This is a quote also from the book on happiness. And I just, you got to have a British guy say things because they just say it better. He says, the woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses in the end not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. <laughs> you can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. So here's a recipe for unhappiness. Take notes. You want to be unhappy? Here you go. This is, this is from a Duke University study on happiness and unhappiness. And I've, I've kind of rephrased some of their answers here for effect. Number one, hold grudges. You want to be unhappy? Hold a grudge. Be bitter. Pour a cup of poison for your enemy and then sip it slowly yourself all day long. Live in the past. If only I woulda, coulda, shoulda. My glory days are behind me. Complain about things you can't change. Avoid reality. Live in your little fantasy world where everything ought to go according to your wishes. Indulge in self-pity. Woe is me. Think too highly of yourself. And, and they, they meant by this, um, convince yourself that you should have better gifts and better achievements and accomplishments than you really have. You know, it's not fair. I should be better looking. I should be taller. I should be a better athlete. I should, I should, I should, I should. Why? Just be happy with gifts and talents God's given you. And then focus on your own 
happiness or unhappiness, as it were, all day long. And I know that's counterintuitive because you would think, if I want to be happy, I need to focus on figuring out how to be happy. But they found that those are the most miserable people on the planet. People trying to figure out what it's going to take to make me happy. Hey, why don't you come with us? We're going to go have fun and do some happy things. No, I've got to sit here and figure out how to be happy. Oh, well, let us know when you figure it out. We're going to be off praising the Lord, serving the Lord, enjoying our salvation, enjoying the bounty He's provided us. Those people get mad. Well, how dare you be happy without me? You come back here and be miserable with me. Uh, I'll walk with you for a mile, but around the second mile, I'm out of here. I don't want to leave anyone wallowing in misery and despair, but at some point, if they don't choose to repent of that, they'll drag the whole world down into their pit of misery with them. What's the quickest path to happiness? Here's here's the conclusion, the spoiler alert. If you want to plug your ears and close your eyes, but come on, you want to be happy, don't you? Ecclesiastes 12.13, Solomon says, Here's the conclusion. When all has been heard is fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. Everyone will, will have to stand before God. Everyone's created by God. Nobody's exempt from this. Nobody got here on their own. No man is an island. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And God is good and He'll judge rightly. And all things will make sense on the final day. So you don't have to make sense out of everything today. You don't have to straighten out all the crooked things. You don't have to solve all the unsolvable problems. You don't have to figure out how to have heaven on earth because heaven's waiting for you in heaven. You can be faithful to accomplish the things God has given you to accomplish. Faithful to keep the commandments He's given you for today. Faithful to be grateful for today's provision, today's blessings, knowing that there's so much better waiting for you later in Christ. So with that, then, here's the recipe for happiness. Really, just be a good Christian. That's it. That's the sum total. Love God. Love your neighbor. Worship the Lord. Enjoy your salvation. Start each morning thinking of the cross. Wow, Jesus died for me. If you can't get happy from that thought, don't get out of bed yet. You say, yeah, I know there's that, but what else is there? What do you mean, what else is there? You get God for eternity. No no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Pray. And I don't mean ask God for all the things that you think will make you happy. That's not praying. I know that's how some of us pray. That's how I used to pray. And when I have my Solomon moments, that's the way I pray. But that's not how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father. Oh, our Father. He's our Father. He can stop right there and be happy. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
praying affirmations about who God is and His character, His holiness. Praise God you're holy and you're not a double-minded man like we are. Praise you that you never change. Your promises never fail. Great is thy faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In my life today, God, let your will be done. Let me be happy with it. Let me be satisfied with your will. Because it's all perfect up in heaven. So let it come down. Whatever it looks like in heaven, that's what I want here on earth. Give us this day our daily bread. There, Now you can ask. Provide for my needs today, God, according to what you see are my needs. You know what my real needs are. And because you met my greatest need by dying on the cross, I can trust that you will provide for all my other needs. And sometimes he even gives us our wants. And so learn to pray. If my wants are going to bring you glory and me good, then could you throw some of those in too? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. This is important to God. He says this is what will bring you great happiness, forgiving others and asking others forgive you and asking that your God forgive you. And then lead us not into temptation. Help, help me not be tempted or to give in to temptation that I would stray from you, God, and search for happiness apart from you. Deliver me from the evil one. All his lies, all his tricks, all his empty promises. I know I'm going to walk out into a world that's listening to Satan's lies and tricks and temptations. Deliver me from the evil one, Lord. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be in the Word of God daily and don't just read your two pages so you can check off the box and say you read your two pages or whatever. That's not how to draw close to God. Read with a discerning mind, a heart that wants to learn from God as I read. A heart that wants to know how to apply what I've read to my daily life. Serve the Lord by serving others. So many people I meet that are unhappy say they can't serve until they find happiness. You'll never find the happiness. The reason you're unhappy is because you become so inward focused, so self-focused. Get out and serve other people. Serve the Lord. Make disciples of all nations, especially children. Look, the cultural elites who claim to be the happiest people on the planet, but we know they're the most miserable, can't stand children. They're not having any. And sadly, when they do have them, in this country, they get rid of them. They don't see them as a blessing. They see them as messy and expensive and time-consuming. And yes, they are. Praise God, because I would waste all that time and money on myself, and I would be miserable. If you're done with the rearing of children, you're, you're not done. Pour into other people's children. Come alongside a young couple who's struggling. Serve in Sunday school in Awana. Teach a kid. Mentor. 
Finally, get your mind off of your own happiness and you will find happiness. In the book on happiness, they quote a researcher who did his PhD on happiness and titled his PhD, The Paradox of Altruism. You know, altruism, laying down your life for another person. The paradox. And he said, in all of my research, the one thing that I found is that the least happy people on earth are those who are fixated on their own happiness, and the happiest people on earth are those who spend their time trying to help other people be happy. Not being people pleasers, we know that's wrong, but just genuinely helping other people find happiness and meaning and satisfaction in life. And he said, huh, I guess do unto others as you would have others do unto you is pretty good wisdom. He's not a Christian who wrote the paper. Or as Jesus said, those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. God, teach us to lose our life for Christ's sake. To follow Jesus. To surrender all and trust that the happiness and satisfaction we're looking for will be found in Him and obeying His commands. Lord, may we go home today and by Your Holy Spirit take inventory of our lives See where we've been trying to cook up happiness stew with ingredients that will only bring misery and replace those ingredients with the things you have said will bring happiness. And that we would be patient and wait for the soup to simmer. Just because the happy feelings don't come immediately, Lord, teach us to wait on you and be patient and trust you for your glory and our good. Amen.